your Bibles. Grab your Bibles or your Philippians journal and uh, find your way to Philippians chapter 2. Okay, we're going to be continuing our study through this great, just joyful book of Philippians. As we get into chapter 2 today, we're actually getting into my favorite chapter in the entire Bible. I remember when I became a Christian, um, I started that first month, I just was like, I got to read the Bible to tell, learn about God, to tell everybody about Jesus. And I remember just going from cover to cover and just trudging through everything. And then I got to the book of Philippians and there was something different. And I remember God just like gripped me through this book. And I got to chapter two and this is a chapter that is just so rich. It's so beautiful that I'm excited to, to talk about this with you today. But as you get to chapter two, let me, let me start here. Uh, there's a man named Stephen Lawson, who's a pastor, theologian. He's, he points out that the Christian life is just full of opposites that seem to contradict themselves. For example, when you read the Bible, you see statements like this, that we must die to self in, if we would live for Christ. We see statements like we must declare spiritual bankruptcy if we would be rich. We must mourn if we would be happy. We must hunger if we would be satisfied. We must lose our life if we would save it, but if we seek to save our life, we'll actually lose it. You read through the Bible, you see statements like this that seem to contradict themselves. But perhaps the greatest apparent contradiction is what we're gonna get into today in Philippians chapter two, that we must humble ourselves if we're to be exalted. And humility is the topic today. This is the topic of Philippians chapter two, and it's a word that literally just means to think of yourself or to judge yourself with lowliness. All right, and if you likely have heard the definition of humility before, that humility is not necessarily just thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. And I think that's a great definition, and it's, it's helpful. I actually prefer the way that Andrew Murray says it, and he says it like this, that the humble person is not one who just merely thinks of himself less, but he simply doesn't think of himself at all. Humility. And this is clearly seen, we're going to clearly see this in the life of Jesus today in Philippians chapter 2, but humility is really just one of those things that when you think you have it, you've actually lost it, right? And so it's like, hey, what's your greatest quality? Well, I'm super humble. Okay, perfect. There you go. You got it. All right? But it, it's, it's, that's tr it's true. But humility is like the truly humble person knows themselves, accepts themselves, and completely yields themselves to Christ to be a servant to use what they are and who they are and what they have for the glory of God and the good of others. And so as we talk about humility, humility is very much about a focus on others over ourselves. And when you think about this biblically, like the most truest like biblical sense in the, is humility is like the most foundational of all Christian virtues. And it's really the central tenet to the Christian faith. Now here's what I'll say. Here's the issue. While we can easily look at the Bible, you can read the Bible and see that humility is like of utmost importance and a key component to the Christian life, and you can read through the Gospels and see the life of Jesus and see his humility as just like an essence of his existence. Here's what we need to know. That by nature in sin, we are not humble people. We are all prideful. And this is something that we are all on a common ground with. And we're all prideful in our own unique ways and with varying degree of intensity. But we are all, in fact, prideful. And now maybe you're sitting there and you're mad at me for calling you prideful. You're probably more proud than most people here, okay? So that's just the truth. 
We are all prideful. But you need to know this, okay? It's pride is not just one of those things of like, not that big a deal, just be humble, don't be proud. But I want you to know that pride is very serious and it's very dangerous. All right, the respected theologian John Stott says that pride is our, actually our greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. And what you need to know about pride is that pride in origin and practice is literally just demonic. If you read the Bible, Isaiah chapter 15, we see Satan was originally an angel created by God. And in his pride, he was kicked out of heaven. This was the first sin. He became very proud, got kicked out of heaven. And in his pride, Satan tempted the pride of the first of humanity, Adam and Eve, and they sinned. And this is why our world is the way that it is today, just completely broken, where there is pain, there is shame, there is suffering, there is hurts, there is injustice, there are tears, all of it. Sin has caused all of that, and the root of all sin is pride. I believe it was the early church father, Augustine, that said that pride is the mother of all sins. And this is an important truth that we need to understand that pride is the root sin which leads to the fruit of all sin. And Doxa, this is what makes pride so destructive and so dangerous for every single one of us. That it's so destructive and dangerous both individually and corporately. And I, and I need to tell you this because on a personal level, here's what you need to understand. Guys, God hates pride. And it's not like just like, oh man, I don't, I don't like green beans, right? It's like God hates it. He hates pride. And as we get into this, I want to share a few scriptures that, that help speak to this because as I was considering this topic, you know, it's just like, I was just thinking about these verses and it just puts a weight on it of how dangerous pride is. And we need to consider this because I really believe that God wants us to give the proper attention and the proper importance to this matter of pride. But Proverbs 6.16, it's going to come up here on the screen, says this, there are six things that the Lord hates. He hates it. Seven that are an abomination to him. First on the list, haughty eyes, proud eyes. It's this self-made attitude, this self-focused lifestyle, this cocky, arrogant, self-righteous person that I can so easily be and so can you. God hates that. He hates it. Proverbs 8.13 says this, Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech, I hate. Pride and arrogance, God hates it. And when we are filled with pride, it's the thing that is in us that will keep us from God because he absolutely hates it. Look at Proverbs 16.5. And honestly, Doc, as you hear this, this is just terrifying. Everyone who is arrogant in heart I don't know your heart, you don't know my heart, God knows your heart. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. And so our motives, our thoughts, our posture, our tone, our attitudes, if based in pride, even if no one else sees that part of you, God sees it and he hates it. It's sin, and it will keep us from God, and it will bring us to a fall. And when that happens, in this life or in eternity, it will be very unpleasant and very destructive to every single one of our lives. 
This is a warning, doxa. Last one. Again, I just want you to think about this. Pride is so serious and so dangerous. James 4, 6, 1 Peter 5, 5, both say the same thing, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so God is God, we are not, and as he sits on his throne in heaven in glory, he's doing two things. He's opposing proud people and he's giving grace to humble people. That those who rise themselves up in pride, he brings them down, but those who humble themselves, he rises up. And we just need to know this. Guys, God actively opposes, fights against, and resists proud people. And so, Doxa, I, I, I really want us to understand this, that pride will, in fact, kill you. It'll kill you in the sense of your eternity because pride is the sin that is most likely to keep you from crying out for a savior because those who think they're well don't ever look for a doctor. But pride will also kill you presently because in our pride, God is against us. He's distant from us because he hates pride. And so these are very much warnings. And honestly, if you believe the Bible to be the word of God, these are intense. All right, if you're new and you're like, wow, this is really, you guys really got into this. Is you like this every week? Kinda, not really, okay? But you get it, right? But this is intense. This is very intense. But hear this. God is so good. He's so good that he gives us his words to us in the Bible to warn us of the destructive force in the world and in our lives that will keep us from him. Because, Doc, if you don't know this, God's heart is not to oppose you but to love you and to give grace to you. And if you ever doubt this, remember why Jesus came, why he lived, why he died. He came for you to give grace. But hear this, it's the humble that can be the grace recipients. Now, additionally, pride is also dangerous to us on a, on a corporate level. All right, that pride will destroy relationships. Some of you have lived that. Some of you are living that. You've been the kind of like the victim maybe of like a prideful person that has just come after you and like squashed you, hurt you, and divided that relationship. Some of us, we've been those pride people, pride, proud people, that we do that to other people in those relationships, but we need to know that pride destroys relationships. It will destroy the church, the family of God, because pride destroys unity among people. Pride will never bring us together in love, but will always divide us with bitterness. And Paul knew this, and he saw this as a real and growing threat to the Philippian church. When we get to chapter four in a few weeks, we're gonna learn of a dispute. There's an argument going on between two women in this church that went from their living room to now affecting the whole church, and the whole church is beginning to be divided as pride is just running rampant, and Paul sees this as a real threat that's gonna cause division and cause this church to fall into a really unhealthy place. And so this is what Paul addresses here in Philippians chapter 2. And here's what he says, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Paul is urging the Philippian Christians to live their lives in a way that is worthy of the gospel. And this is what he started to talk about. If you look back to chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, only let your, the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel. And now here in chapter 2, he's explaining what this looks like. And he basically says the overarching way to live your life worthy of the gospel is by living a humble life. And the word humility appears in verse 3, but it really just permeates this entire section. And this, this humble life will not only just like cause you to grow in like godliness and progress in the gospel, which again, if you look back to chapter 1, verse 25, this is what Paul taught us last week, but this will also allow the church of God to thrive in unity and not die by division. And so, Doxa, very practically, I need you to understand this. If we actually want to be the church that Jesus died and rose to establish, if we actually want to be a church that doesn't just flag the fly, or fly the flag of like for the glory of God and good of Madison, but if we actually want to be a church that exists for the glory of God and the good of our great city, we need to be a humble church family. Pride will stifle that. Pride will kill us. And Paul knew this, and he wants to help us with this, and here's how he talks about it. There's, event, there's essentially three movements in this section. All right, Paul is going to tell us of the motivation for a humble life, the marks of a humble life, and the means by which we live a humble life. So the first thing, the motivation of the humble life, verse 1 again. So if there, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. All right, here's what Paul's saying. Before he even talks to the Philippians about living a humble life, a life worthy of the gospel and what this looks like, the first thing Paul does is he reminds them of the grace of God in their lives. All right, that Paul always starts with the gospel. He always comes back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the good news of the love and the grace and the patience of God. And before he tells anyone to do anything, he starts by reminding us all of what Jesus has done for us. And if you look, he starts with a series of if statements. Look back. He says, if there is any encouragement, if there's any comfort and love, if any participation in the Spirit, if any affection and sympathy. And this word if here, it refers to like certainties and not possibilities. These are certainties that the word if can also be translated and maybe even better translated as since or because. And so what Paul is saying is he's saying since there's encouragement in Christ, and since there's comfort from love, and since there's participation in the Spirit, and since there's affection and sympathy, all because of what Jesus has done, since that's absolutely true, here's how you live. But as he shares these four things with the Philippians, these blessings, he does so to the remind the Christian of the cords of love that bind us together as God's people, which should sh serve as a motivator to how we live. And I want to touch on these briefly to really just kind of help us understand this and see how these great blessings 
Stir our affection. Stir our gratitude, our thankfulness to God, and motivate us for humility. The first reminder is that there is, in fact, encouragement in Christ. All right, encouragement means to like literally call near or to come alongside another to help. And so Paul is reminding us here that Jesus Christ left heaven in order that he might come alongside us to help us. That Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, and he's come to walk alongside us to give us hope and comfort and healing and salvation from sin, to help us. He's come alongside of us to help us escape the terrible reality of hell that sin will lead to. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that Paul is always going about, and this gospel truth encourages us that no matter how dark and despairing things get, no matter how messy and sinful our lives get, we know that Jesus has come and Jesus has lived and Jesus has died and Jesus has rose for our salvation and through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, he is still with us. Amen? Christian, does this encourage you? It should. It should most definitely encourage you. Jesus is alive and his spirit is with us. The second reminder is this. We have comfort from love. All right, Paul is saying that our faith in Jesus gives us just like a, a solace, a peace when our hearts are heavy and our lives are messy. That Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, has overcome Satan, sin, death, and hell. And through faith, we receive his love, which gives us just an unlimited supply of comfort in life. And this comforting love is what gives us certain hope for heaven and present comfort and strength to navigate the hardships and the sin of all of our lives. That he is ours and we are his. And this love that binds us to Jesus also empowers us to love and bind us to others for humility and unity and love. Thirdly, Paul reminds us that we share in partnership or fellowship with the Spirit. All right, and this takes us back to chapter 1, verse 5, this little word partnership, it's the word koinonia, which means just like a togetherness or a mutual sharing. It's the same word that we looked at in chapter 1, talking about Paul's partnership, their koinonia, their fellowship with the Philippians in the gospel. And so Paul is reminding us here that the Holy Spirit unites us as brothers and sisters in the family of God, makes us partners of the gospel and helps us in our weakness. This is Romans 8, 26 the beautiful chapter on the movement of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit in the life of a Christian. It's amazing. And since Paul is aware that this unity and that fighting threatened the Philippian church, he reminds them of the Holy Spirit-produced fellowship that they share, that God has done a great work in them and for them. And then fourthly, Paul reminds us that we share affection and sympathy. And affection and sympathy can also be understood as kind of just like tenderness and compassion. And, and this is what we get through faith in Jesus, that when Jesus takes our sin, we become objects of God's like tenderness and compassion, that we're no longer objects of wrath, we're no longer enemies of God, but he sees us with tenderness and compassion. And this brings us great comfort and joy and peace and security in life. And within every Christian, there's an abundant supply of each of these things that Paul mentions. That in Christ there's encouragement, there's hope, there's love, there's comfort, there's strength, there's certainty, there's help, there's tenderness, there's compassion. I mean, does that bring some joy in your life? Doxa, again, it should. And I think this is the problem with a lot of us as Christians. Like Paul is sitting in prison, joyful, awaiting his execution. 
And he's got this joy because he's remembering all this. We tend to hear this stuff. We tend to read this stuff and we're like, that's great. That's, that's encouraging. I'm going to write that down. Guys, this is the stuff that when we actually think about the implications of the gospel, when we actually think about what Jesus actually gives us and we move from playing church to living in Christ, it changes everything. It changes everything about how we view life, how we experience joy. And this is why Paul starts here. He's quick to first mention the blessings of the gospel before giving any type of exhortation. And he does this because if all you ever do is tell people what they're supposed to be doing without sharing the motivation behind it, they'll just get burnt out. But by reminding people of the blessings that come through Jesus, this warms hearts, this softens hearts, this changes hearts, which is affects everything of who we are and how we see and live our lives. And so for Paul, all of these things should motivate the Christian to love and good works where we desire and actively seek and live in love and humility towards God and other people. This is a life worthy of the gospel. This is in fact the Christian life. Not the radical Christian life, but this is just the Christian life. Humble. And so he shares this and then he goes on to share some of the marks of the humble life. Verse one again. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection in sympathy, all right, Paul says these are all certainties, these are all true, and because of this, here's how you live your life. Verse two, complete my joy. And Paul, his joy isn't tied up with getting out of prison, but his joy is tied up, is consumed with how God's people would live with him. How do you complete my joy? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not, only, not look only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. All right, here's what Paul says. The humble life, the life worthy of the gospel, will be a life marked by two things. A fighting for unity and selfless living. And verse 2 shows us how Paul addresses unity. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And I want you just to see this, okay? As you look at that verse, Paul's thoughts on unity begin with the words, the same mind. And then it ends with the words, of one mind. Both of which which speak to a life intent on a unified purpose or just like a, a common single goal. And if you've been around Doxa for any amount of time or been here just like for the last few weeks as we've been studying Philippians, it should be of no surprise for you. And you should know what this unified purpose and this unified goal is. What is it, Doxa? There's always one good answer. Jesus, right? And this is what it is for Paul. It always comes back to Jesus. It's the gospel. That in chapter one, Paul mentions the gospel five times. And so here, the call in verse 2 is really just a plea for the Philippians to be gospel-oriented people, to have the gospel as the main thing, the central thing in their lives as they live with, relate to, and care for one another in unity. And so in a very gracious way, Paul was saying to this church, guys, your disagreements, your, your conflict, it's revealing that there is a spiritual problem in your relationships And it's not going to be solved by rules or threats from the outside, but it's gonna be solved from within you. 
when your hearts are right with God and when your hearts are right with each other. And Paul wants them to see that the basic cause of these relational problems was selfishness. And the cause of selfishness is pride. And I want you to know that, guys, in your own life, in all of our relationships, marriage, friendships, kids, coworkers, you name it, pride will cause division, will cause separation because it leads to selfishness. And so maybe you're in here and your marriage is just garbage right now. And you're thinking, it's like, it's her. She just nags me all the time. Or it's him. I would encourage you to look inward and say, how could I be the problem? Because I know that I am proud. I know that I am selfish. And if more people did this, that would yield unity, love. The reason behind brokenness and tensions and divisions is selfishness, which has its root in pride. And the only remedy to that pride and that selfishness and disunity is the gospel. Now hear me out on this, because maybe you're like, that's not true. Let me just tell you this. It's only the gospel, because it's only the gospel that causes us not to focus on other people's issues, but instead causes me to focus on my own issues. That the gospel causes me to see how broken and messed up Rob Warren is, but how loving and patient God has been with me through Jesus and will lead me to living humbly towards others as I am now humbled before God. See, guys, we are all prone to think too highly of ourselves. But the truth is, we're not that great. Some of you need me to hear, to hear me say that again. You are not that great, okay? You're just not, thank you, okay? You're not that great. And we can look around the room and we can start comparing ourselves to other people and we can start looking at their sin and their shortcomings and all the way that they live their life and parent and whatever. We can do all of that stuff. And as we do that, we can position ourselves above other people. But when we focus on the gospel, when we focus on Jesus, we realize that there really is nothing great about me. That God made me. I didn't make myself. I'm not this self-made man that's super successful or anything like that. That God made me. That anything good in my life is in fact a gift from God. I didn't just achieve it and do it all on my own because it's, it's me that creates everything. That God saved me. I didn't save myself. It's not that I was just like so intellectually astute that I just figured out something that everybody else missed and that's what brought me salvation. God actually did it all. And when I consider Jesus and I start to compare my life with his life, you know what happens in Rob Warren? It's not pride that rises up, but humility. Because I see how different I am than Jesus. And that humility will lead me to view my life and others differently and will lead to unity. Because I start to think of them the way God thinks of me. And this is why we always talk about the gospel here at Doxa. Number one, because it's the gospel that allows us to be with God. That it's Jesus and his forgiveness of sin that is the only way to be with God. But number two, it's the gospel that allows us to live in love and unity with people. Because it's the gospel that changes our perspective, it changes our hearts, it empowers our love, it grows our patience. 
Because as we remember who we are and how God has loved us through the gospel of Jesus Christ, it humbles us, it changes us, and it reorients the way that we live and see other people and ourselves. So doxa, humility and unity come when we fight to keep the gospel at the center of our lives. Now, if you've been following Jesus for longer than like two hours, you know that this is very, very difficult. No matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how godly you think you are, no matter how much you love Jesus, it is a fight to keep him on the throne of your heart and the center of your mind. And this is so hard for us because pride and sin are very real in all of our lives. And the truth that we all need to know is that this side of heaven, we will never drift towards godliness. We will never naturally drift towards humility. We will never naturally drift towards unity. We will never naturally drift towards Jesus because the stream and the tendency of sin and pride in our lives will always pull us away. That's why Paul says to train yourself for godliness. You're just gonna drift down the river that's leading you away from God because of sin and pride in this world. We need to fight. And I take comfort that Paul, because Paul's not just like this armchair theologian that's perfect. But you remember what he says in Romans chapter seven and chapter eight? He's talking about his own life and his wrestle with sin and pride and all this stuff. And he's like, I don't do the things I wanna do and I keep doing the things that I don't wanna do and I'm such a terrible man, like what am I gonna do? And he's, and he's feeling this inside of himself. And then he gets to chapter eight, verse one, one of the most beautiful verses in the entire Bible. And he's just like, thanks be to God. Because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul knew his sin but he focused on his savior. It was the gospel, that it was at the center of everything for Paul. And this led to an explosive life of joy and love and compassion towards people. A humble life. And so fighting for unity is a mark of the humble life. But the second thing that Paul shares is this, is that the humble life, the life worthy of the gospel will be marked by selflessness. Verse three. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Now, because there's, there's some parts of the Bible that as a Bible teacher, I have to do some work with, right? I pull out the Greek because it's just really, it's like confusing, right? This is not one of them, okay? It's just not one of them. And we could be like, well, what does he mean by selfish? What's the Greek word? It's the Greek word for selfish, okay? He's saying, don't live selfishly. Think of others more significantly than yourselves. Think of others' interests. And I'll tell you, guys, this is very radical from Western living. We do not do this. This is not a virtue that we lift up and prop up. This is Jesus living. But this is the question that we have to wrestle with. It's like, how do we truly live like Jesus? And I'll tell you, it's pretty simple. In fact, we can reduce it to two words. Selfless humility. This is what Paul is sharing. But just because it's simple doesn't mean that it's easy. Because genuinely living like Jesus means embodying and expressing a virtue that is rarely seen on earth. 
You didn't know that? Living like Jesus is rarely seen on earth. But this is the goal of the Christian life. Romans 8.29, being conformed to the image of Jesus. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, if anyone claims to live in him, must walk as Jesus did. But saying and desiring to live like this and actually living in this way are two different things. And this is why Paul turns to the crux of humility, literally the cross, by looking at the person and work of Jesus. And this is the third movement in this text, that Jesus is the most humble man who has ever lived. And Jesus is actually the means by which we live a humble life because he both exemplifies and enables humility in all of us. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I want you to circle that in your Bible, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself being, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Paul says no one is more humble than Jesus. And Jesus demonstrates this in what we call the incarnation. It's just a theological term which means God became a man. And so incarnation means that God, who is spirit, takes upon a physical body. This is what we're talking about. And what Paul is saying here is that in becoming a man, Jesus is the most humble man who has ever lived because Jesus is God from heaven become a man on earth. And in that, because if you just think about that just dynamic of the, the truth of the incarnation, the creator entered the creation. The one seated on the throne chooses to be born in a barn. He who is living as king in heaven comes to live in poverty on earth and to suffer and to be called the man of sorrows. He is, who is surrounded by angels in heaven singing his glory comes to be surrounded by people who mocked him, abused him, and killed him. Humble. Now, as Paul says this, it's important to note that he's not saying that Jesus ceased to be God when he became a man. Okay? This is very important. Or rather, what he's saying here is that he set aside his rights and he set aside the use of his divine attributes. And so this doesn't mean that he didn't possess them, but he didn't continually access them. That while on earth, Jesus was still fully God. He was worshipped as God, he declared himself to be God, he forgave sin which only God can do, and he raised from the dead to validate his claims to be God. And so while Jesus was on earth, he was God. But God, another theological word for you, God is immutable, which means he never changes, he does not change. So what is Jesus entered into humanity, he set aside his divine attribute of immutability so that he could grow from a baby to a boy to a man. We learn in Luke's gospel that he learned, that he grew in wisdom and stature, that Jesus set that aside. This is what we're talking about. And so Jesus Christ humbly lived a fully human life while still being God. And while he had the right to be worshipped as God, he humbled himself, choosing to live with us and like us, but with no sin. And guys, I tell you this, this is the humble incarnation, but this is so important for us to understand because history is littered with heresies surrounding the identity and the nature of Jesus. You just study history, you'll see a ton of different heresies surrounding Jesus and his identity. In, 40, in 451, with the Council of Chalcedon, 
These people gathered around to address some of these heresies and they pronounced a creed which says that Jesus is fully God and fully man. We call this the hypostatic union. The Jesus, fully God, fully man. And this is so important for us to cling to. In every generation, we must contend for biblical truth. We must contend for a biblical view of the person and work of Jesus because even this day, we still hear things about Jesus, that he was just a prophet, or he was a good man, or he was a great example for us to follow, or it's really just the idea of Jesus that actually matters. But to all that, we must humbly say no. We gotta be convictional, but at the same time, be humble. And we just say no. We need to boldly defend the glory of Jesus as the God-man for the sake of the gospel and the salvation of people that God loves. And even as we celebrate like a parent-child dedication, we need to teach these things to our children. Parents, our kids are growing up in a world that is confused or denying the identity of Jesus. And in the spirit of Deuteronomy chapter six, when we walk, when we lie, when we sit, We need to teach our kids about the person and work of Jesus Christ. But what Paul is saying is that Jesus exemplifies the humble life. And not only was Jesus the most humble person, but his death on the cross was the most humble act in all of history. Look at verse eight. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus' humiliation on the cross is the rock bottom of his humility and the most gripping part of his obedience. And when we think about the cross, we're thinking about and talking about the most barbaric, shameful, painful form of death. Roman citizens were not even allowed to be crucified. Jews understood crucifixion as being cursed by God. Ancient philosophers would speak of the crucifixion and say that it wasn't even fit for a decent human being to ponder that type of murderous death. Yet here is Jesus, God in flesh, the Lord of glory, dying on a cross. And when Jesus went to the cross to die, he did so in my place for my sin. Romans 5, 8 says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, is that while we were still sinning, Jesus died for us. And here's how I want you to encourage, or encourage you to think about this. I don't know if you've done this before, but this is the truth. You and I, we killed Jesus. You just need to understand that. In the words of the old hymn, it was my sin that held him there. We killed Jesus. I killed Jesus. You killed Jesus. That if it weren't for our sin, Jesus would have never had to die but out of his love and his care for us, by his humility, he allowed it. No one took it from him, he allowed it. And as he died, he did this for me. And Doxa, this is still a truth that I'm gripped by. I learned this in 2006. God broke in and showed me this that Jesus died for me so that I could have salvation and love and security and a relationship with God, my creator. 
Listen to how Paul speaks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Just see the humility of Jesus Christ. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That not only did Jesus humble himself to become a man, but he humbled himself to die on the cross, where he died as my substitute to pay my penalty for my sin. And through faith in Jesus, all of my sin goes on Jesus, but all of his righteousness comes to me. All of my condemnation goes on Jesus, but all of his salvation comes on me. All of my guilt and shame goes on Jesus, and his perfection comes to me. And this is all through the humility of Jesus. And through his humility, I'm helped, I'm served, I'm made new, I'm saved, I'm secure in the family of God forever. And I don't understand that kind of love because I know the kind of man that I used to be and I know the kind of man that I am today. But while I don't understand this love, Doxa, I'm thankful for this love and I can say for myself that this love has completely changed my life and it's altered my eternity. Is this any of your stories, right? It's, this is the stuff that wells up joy. This is the stuff that makes us want to sing. This is the stuff that makes Jesus worth following. It's the reason for everything. And if you would sit here and say that this is not your story, this can be your story if you come to Jesus. And Paul gives us this picture for our salvation, but ultimately for our imitation. All right, the cross of Jesus and his death for our sins is tied to the command in verses three and four. Look back. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. This is Jesus. Jesus did all that. And this is the call of the Christian life and a life worthy of the gospel. And so I would encourage you in your connection group this week to ask that question, does this mark your life? Does Jesus' humility follow the spiritual principle in Matthew 23, 12, saying whoever humbles himself will be exalted, and that's how Paul ends this in verse nine. Therefore, God has highly exalted him because of his humility, his death on a cross. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. If you are here and you don't know who God is, his name is Jesus. And I want you to know that. And the name of Jesus is the greatest, most beautiful name of all. Because Jesus is the only one that can reconcile proudful, sinful people to a humble, loving God. Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy 2. He says, for there is one God. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. And that is the man Jesus Christ. And because this is true... Jesus is the name that we should sing. Jesus is the name that we should love. Jesus is the name that we should preach. Jesus is the name that we should live for. Jesus is the name that we should pass along. It's all about Jesus because out of his great humility through his incarnation and his humiliation on the cross, he is now exalted above all as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That Jesus descended into humility and was raised into glory. And this is the same. This is the name that Paul is saying that every knee will bow to and every tongue will confess. And I just need you to know this. Somebody in here needs to know this today, that when Jesus returns in glory, as he promised he would do, 
Just as he promised to raise from the dead, when he returns in glory to eradicate sin and death and Satan forever and bring about a new creation, on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The question is not whether or not you will confess Jesus as Lord and whether or not you will bend your knee to Jesus. The question is, will you do it today? Or will you do it on the other side of the grave? Will you do it today for salvation or the other side of the grave for condemnation? That is the question. Doxa, here is the bottom line. Your name doesn't really matter that much. Okay, it just doesn't. My name doesn't matter that much. But the name of Jesus, that name, that name that's above every name, that matters. He is God, he is worthy, he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, he's God. In Jesus, he loves you, he was born for you, he lived for you, he died for you, he rose for you. For your salvation, he loves you. And if you don't know Jesus, he brought you here today so that you could see him You can see him in glory. You can understand his humility for your salvation. But this takes humility on your part to say, I am not God. There is jacked up stuff in my life. Sin, Jesus, I need you. And that is a prayer that God would love to answer. But when we come to faith in Jesus like that, we don't only receive salvation, but we receive his Holy Spirit. And verse five is what is true. Just look. He gives us the mind of Christ He enables us to look and to think and to live like Jesus for the glory of God and the good of the world humbly. Paul's argument in this section is very simple. If the God-man, Jesus Christ, whose right it was to dwell forever in glory, voluntarily and radically surrendered that right for us, how could we lowly sinners believe and behave as though selfless humility towards others is beneath us? Let's help each other to keep our eyes on Jesus and live like Jesus for the glory of God and the good of Madison. So I'm way out of time. But I want to give you four things that I thought about this week. They're going to come up here on the screen that were really helpful for me. If we want to grow some humility in us, here's four things that will help. Memorize this passage. Dwell regularly on the glory of Jesus here in Philippians 2. Fill your mind with this stuff. Believe this passage. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord? Because you will. Now or later. Don't wait till it's too late. Number three, follow the lifestyle presented in this passage. Guys, this is the attitude and the lifestyle of the Christian because this is the attitude and the lifestyle of our Christ. Follow him, honor him. And number four, tell the world about the message of this passage. Our mission is to tell the world that Jesus is Lord, and if they will confess and believe in him as such, they will be saved. And as we share this gospel message, my prayer is that we would let our humble lives also speak that message to the glory of God. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm thankful for your life, for your death, for your obedience. As we look at this passage, I see how far off I am 
and how great you are. And we just say thank you for your humility. Because without your humility, there would be no salvation. There'd be no reason to sing. There'd be no reason to have this church. But thank you for humbling yourself to die for me. That even as I think about my sin in the past and the present, the stuff I haven't even gotten to yet, I'm overcome with gratitude. And I'm humbled before you that you would die for that because you love me. Would you help us to be people that would not just honor you with our lips, but would honor you with our lives by living like you, humble, selfless, for the glory of God and the good of the world. But we need you. Thank you that you are Emmanuel, God with us. So Holy Spirit, we just ask that you just help us. I invite you to stand. When you walked in, you got this communion cup. One of the ways that we are reminded and helped in our humility is to look to Jesus you to take the bread and hold it in your hand. And as you look at this, let me just remind you of what you're looking at. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, gathered his disciples, he held up the bread and he said, this is my body that is broken for you. Doxa, you want to grow some humility. You want to grow some thankfulness. You want to grow some joy. Remember Jesus' body that was broken for you and just say, thank you. The body of Christ for you, Doxa. Take it. At that same dinner, Jesus grabbed the wine. He said, this is my blood that was shed for you. Jesus came as a selfless servant, a humble God, and he gave everything. He gave his body, he gave his blood for you. As you're standing there, I want you to think of real thoughts of your life and your sin and feel that. And then look down into your hand and see the blood of Christ shed for you and praise God that sin no longer has control of your life, but Jesus does. The blood of Christ for you, Doxa. Take it and thank him. Jesus Christ, our humble God, I'm gonna keep stirring affection to grow our humility, and the way that we're gonna do that is we're gonna sing to him, and we're gonna sing the gospel. So let's sing as a church family.